Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Two Sundays ago, just as I was about to click on the Zoom link to join and worship, my doorbell rang. I had seen the caller walk by my window. It was my neighbor. Laughing, I asked, uh, are you checking to see if I'm still kicking? Yeah, he says, I just had to make sure you were still alive. I'd been working from home, hadn't needed bread or milk that badly, and so my car hadn't, hadn't moved for a few days. <clears throat> my neighbor had taken note and figured he'd better check up on me. I have a good neighbor. His small front yard is largely covered by a huge evergreen, and so in summer he runs over his bit of lawn and then comes over and mows mine. In winter, I rarely get my walk shovel before he is out there doing it for me. Someone said before church that they didn't mind shoveling walk and the walk, and I don't really mind shoveling either as long as I don't have to go out in the cold to do it. So I'm happy that my neighbor is one of those rare Freedom 55 guys, apparently they actually exist, and he tells me he needs something to do. Sometimes if I just clear a path to my car when I come home, I see he's shoveled out my whole driveway, neatly, with a shovel and a broom. When I ask him whether he was the one who cleaned it all up, he just shrugs and pretends that he has no idea how that would have happened. So I appreciate my good neighbor. Today, we heard the story of another good neighbor. We heard it read and we heard the, saw the song or read the song. And it starts with the lawyer in our story. He's wondering how to earn eternal life. What does he need to do to live right? For some reason, he's testing Jesus, and he asks this question. Jesus throws it back at him and answers with the question, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? Well, the expert in the law is the expert in the law. He knows the Hebrew scriptures, and he knows the answer found in the book of Deuteronomy. He can quote scripture and verse. The right answer is, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Good job, says Jesus. Do this, and you'll live. A smart lawyer would have dropped the question, dropped the matter. He should have gone home at that point. But no, he couldn't leave it at that. Maybe he doesn't get along that well with his next-door neighbor, and he's looking for a loophole. Or maybe with his passion for definition, he just needs to know all the details. He pushes Jesus a little further and he asks, uh, Jesus, just how would you define neighbor? So Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, tells a story. We have a traveler, a priest, then a Levite. You know the story well. In the message translation, it says, luckily, a priest happened to be going down the same road. But when the Samaritan comes along, it doesn't say, luckily, the Samaritan came by. Oh, no. Samaritans and Jews despised one another. They hated one another. As someone said in Sunday school, loving your enemy is hard work. It's a hard sell. Though both claimed Abraham as father and Moses as liberator, though both worship the God of Jacob and all our children of Israel, their differences, which went back as far as King Solomon, began as political 
and soon became cultural differences. To the people listening to Jesus' story, this turn of events would have come as a shock. It would most certainly have shattered their categories of who are and who are not the people of God. Sometimes while we are discerning how to respond to someone, we are quick to determine, quick to judge who is friend and who is foe, and our response is based on that judgment. As one resource reminds us, we rarely think twice when it comes to enemies. Our response is emotional and reflexive. If something comes from them, we're against it. Whatever they're saying, it's wrong. Whatever they want is bad. Whatever they're doing must be stopped. It all depends on who is saying it. We easily apply this attitude in politics, sometimes at work, to neighbors who bug us, to family members who push our buttons, and we are aware that we respond this way easily, maybe even in church. We hate our enemies for lots of reasons, sometimes simply because they're not like us. We like sameness, and when there is difference or a difference of opinion, that makes us uncomfortable. I remember that in our family, when someone married outside of the German Mennonite community, that was called marrying an Englander, an English person. There was undoubtedly some concern about that, some initial distrust, some discomfort, but not necessarily hate. With the Samaritans, though, that was different. The catch word for anyone from the northern region was Samaritan, and there was no love lost between them the Jews and Samaritans despised one another. So here's Jesus explaining what he means by neighbor. And to give an example of neighborly mercy and compassion, he pulls in who? A Samaritan. Whoa, Jesus, do you have to be so, so extreme? In Jesus' story, it is the Samaritan whose heart is moved with pity who approaches the traveler and dresses the wounds, who pours on oil and wine. It's the Samaritan who puts the wounded person on his own donkey, takes him to an inn and takes care of him there. And the next day, the Samaritan takes out two silver pieces, gives them to the innkeeper and says, take good care of this person. If it costs any more, put it on my bill and I'll pay you on my way back. As Jesus finishes his story, he takes the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, and rephrases it. He turns it on the lawyer, switches it up to who proved to be a neighbor. Like instead of me saying, I have a good neighbor, Jesus asks me, and to whom are you a good neighbor? It's a whole different question. Now he turns to the expert in the law and says, what do you think? Of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of the three became a neighbor to the, to the beat-up traveler? The answer is obvious. But you got to wonder whether the lawyer is mumbling something under his breath as he concedes that it was the Samaritan. Yes, it was the Samaritan who showed compassion. And Jesus replies simply, go and do the same. Jesus says to us, go and do the same. Hearing these words, we may be muttering under our breath too. Come on, Jesus, are you serious? When we consider which neighbors we are to love, 
we may also be looking for loopholes. When I was in Zimbabwe nearly two years ago, we went to visit a man whose job, I believe, was to give loans to people wanting to start a business, something like that. I don't remember exactly. But what stuck with me, and maybe it helped that I took a picture, was the T-shirt he was wearing. And that T-shirt said on the back, love thy neighbor. And I'm going to try and pull it up here. Whoops, that button. Although we have differences with many of these, according to Jesus, these are all our neighbors, the homeless neighbor, the Muslim neighbor, the black neighbor, the gay neighbor, the immigrant neighbor, the Jewish neighbor, the Christian neighbor, yes, even those that are annoying, the atheist neighbor, the disabled neighbor, and even for us, the white neighbor who might push our buttons. I don't know about you, but I've had a few neighbors like that. It seems like that pretty much includes everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. But how do we do that? How do we connect with, how do we relate to our neighbors? And what holds us back? I get emails from an organization called New Leaf Network, and I know some of you do too. <clears throat> Recently, when they offered a four-week online uh, book club uh, based on Betty Priest's newest book, not surprisingly, given recent heartfelt and, and some passionate discussions in our church, both Joe and I signed up. The book is titled The Space Between Us, Conversations About Transforming Conflict. And in it, Betty Priest shares a dream she had about, a, about playing soccer, of being the only one left playing on the field, playing against a large team of, would you believe, formidable demons. On pondering and exploring the meaning of her dream, she recognized that she truly had demons, or what she calls her defended self. <clears throat> she says, and I quote, the demons were and are my demons. They are the quirks of personality and the addictions to my old narratives that do not serve me well. The old wounds and patterns of behavior that bind us, the habits of mind and spirit that cause us to fall into judgment, negative self-talk, overbearing behavior, the need for control. <clears throat> she goes on to say, our demons emerge from our backstories, the collection of experiences that accumulate over a lifetime and become the patterns and narratives by which we interpret our experiences and which help define the conflicts in our lives, unquote. It reminded me of a dream I had when I was three. And I say I was three because I remember being four and thinking that I had had the dream a very long time ago that I was surprised still to remember it. The interesting thing to me is that it seems I still remember the dream which I would not have, and, and that the dream which I would not have understood at a very young age has now served me well to inform me now as to the part of the reason why I am the way I am. In the dream, my father had dropped me off at my grandparents' house, which was about three miles away. For some reason, I didn't want to stay there, and I wanted to get back to my parents. I clearly remember being at that house and then walking along the road. It was a long way to walk for a three-year-old, and while I was walking, three cars came by, three cars with drivers who I hoped could take me home. But each car was too small, 
I could not fit in. For years, I pondered the memory of this dream in which the cars were too small to take me home. It was just a few years ago as I walked into my kitchen one evening, remembering that dream, that I suddenly realized it was not that the cars were too small, it was that I was too big. I was too big to fit in the cars. I began to cry and I cried for two weeks. Such was the impact of that realization. As I thought back to what my life might have been like at the age of three, it all became clear. I had been an only child until that time and I was the apple of my father's eye. My father loved babies. I saw it in my children, in the way he carried them and played with them until the next baby came along. Then it was again the baby that he carried and played with. I was three when my brother was born. Not only a new baby for my father to carry, but a son. While my, my brother became my father's pride and joy, I am sure that as a child of three, I felt abandoned. This was exacerbated by the fact that my brother was sickly. He had rickets, a softening and weakening of his bones caused by prolonged vitamin D deficiency. My mother and my father will have been very concerned about him. I also know that my mother had two miscarriages within a couple of years, and she will have been grieving. There's no doubt. She talked about it years later. My parents had their own backstories. And I'm sure they did the best with what they were given. Most people, I dare say everyone, is doing the best with what they have been given. But a grieving mother and both parents worried about their son meant that I needed to fend for myself. Although I desperately wanted to get back to my parents, back to the relationship that I'd had with them, I was now too big to warrant their attention. And that had an impact. It made me strive extra hard for their approval. At the same time, I didn't want to upset them further, so I faded into the background, becoming independent and self-sufficient, not wanting to be an annoyance or an inconvenience. Even today, I recognize the impact of my backstory. I see many ways that I build a shell around, a shell around myself for protection. At times, this early experience has drawn out some helpful qualities, but mostly it's continued to be a hindrance when I live out of my defended self. As Betty Priest said, these are the old wounds and patterns of behavior that bind us. Yet when we take down our walls and make ourselves vulnerable, we are better able to grow in understanding of each other. When I go back to the story Jesus told and think about the priest and the Levite, I want to rename the story. Instead of calling it the Good Samaritan, I want to name it Three Persons Different Reactions to Need, although that's not quite as catchy. When I consider what might be their side of the story and think about how I might react in that situation, it makes it much harder to judge. Rather than black and white, things become so much more gray. Would I have stopped on the side of the road? Sometimes when we look at ourselves in relation to others, rather than seeing the differences which tend to make us see them as the other, we see much more clearly the similarities that exist. When we begin to take down our walls, when we let our own protective shells crack, 
when we pay attention to other people's stories and strive to understand, when we see the similarities more prevalent than we would ever have suspected, our hearts open. They open in compassion and understanding. We begin to see them as not so different from ourselves. We begin to see them as neighbors. A few years ago, I went to see a friend who works at Guadalupe Church on Avenue J South. It's a Roman Catholic church that incorporates the spirituality of First Nations, Métis, and non-Aboriginal peoples in its worship services. There were a number of Indigenous people standing around outside, staring at me as I rang the doorbell and waited to be let in. I felt quite uncomfortable, and I wanted to say to them, why are you looking at me? I'm not so different. I can't help that my skin color is white. I can't help the way I am. If I had, I expect their reply might have been, we can't help it. We can't change our skin color. We can't help who we are either. I wish I could have sat down with them and just interacted one-on-one. -on -one. Each one is, after all, my neighbor, as is the homeless, the Muslim, the Chinese, the LGBTQSIA+, the immigrant, the Jew, the fundamentalist Christian, the atheist, the disabled, they are all my neighbors to whom I'm called to be neighborly. Do I want to be a neighbor? Even to those who frustrate me? Does Jesus want me to sit down, for instance, and listen to my niece's story, the niece with whom I disagree on many issues? Does Jesus want me to enter a diner, sit down with a trucker on Highway 1, and with a posture of curiosity, invite them to tell me their story? Seriously? Them too? That thought comes as a bit of a shock. Jesus, do you have to be so extreme? Yet, when I meet with people and hear their stories, I am so often amazed at the similarity between us, how we connect as one at a deeper level. In the grammatical construction of the passage in Luke 10, Betty Priest says that, it, that the text doesn't say that we should love as neighbor, our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, or even in the same way as we love ourselves, but rather it assumes that we love our neighbor as though our neighbor actually is ourselves. And so loving our neighbors is possible because of the unity, the oneness at a deeper level. She says, and I quote, it is possible because at this same place, unity with God invites us, no, compels us to see the world and its pain through God's eyes. When we face our demons, become centered and grounded in ourselves, we learn to embrace our true selves, even as we lose our inclination to judge others, alienating others from them. In other words, when we recognize our common humanity, this is the birthplace of compassion. We will recognize our oneness with the other and be enabled and empowered to love our neighbor as ourselves, to serve them at their point of need. A concept that I've been interested in for some time is something known as circles for reconciliation, 
When I first heard of these circles, they were only functioning in Manitoba, but I'm aware that there has since been interest in many places across the country, including Saskatoon. Quoting from their website, the aim of Circles for Reconciliation is to establish trusting, meaningful relationships through the creation of small gatherings of an equal number of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people with the sole purpose of promoting reconciliation as part of the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I've got a video to play here. I really didn't know anything about the residential schools. And so to sit down with these ladies and hear what they went through and what their mothers went through and what their grandmothers went through, I think that had a huge impact on me as how deep it went. It's healing. It's very healing to talk about it and to share. You can't learn it in a history book or from a professor at university, but to talk to people who've been through it, I think that's the best way to learn. I think the one thing I've got out of this circle is the strength of the women within this circle, the spirit the faithfulness they have. They haven't been residential schools or 60 school, but they, some of these women have had hard lives too. We kind of can relate to each other, but in different ways, but we're still connected. Note that near the end, it is an Indigenous woman who says, we can relate to each other in different ways, but we're still connected. She recognizes that others have hurts too, and I hear a sense of oneness, a commonality that exists despite differences. It reminds me of a time I met for coffee with a newly separated woman, the mother of a young child. She was at least half my age, likely even younger, and as we shared our stories, I noted to her, our stories are different. And she finished the sentence with, but the feelings are the same. Precisely, that is oneness. To me, these circles for reconciliation seem like an excellent way to grow in understanding and build relationships between settlers and indigenous persons, one-on-one, -on -one, or in this case, more accurately, five-on-five. I believe it is quite possible that really hearing their stories would help us to recognize our common humanity. This is just one example, but I think it applies to all our relationships, particularly when we perceive difference. Every person is our neighbor and to turn it around like Jesus did, each of us needs to consider to whom we are neighborly. So if you want to live right, consider your neighbor. You know who your next door neighbors are, but more importantly, consider to whom you are neighborly. We can't do it all, obviously, but my challenge as you pull into your driveway or ride the elevator to your condo or apartment and enter the door of your home, my challenge is to you is to think about your neighbor. Consider your next door neighbor. 
but then rephrase that question as Jesus did. Let that thought spread. Let it burst from that point out into the world to consider who else needs your neighborliness. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, God's dream is that you and I and all of us will realize that we are family. Or today we could say, we realize that we are all neighbors, that we are made for togetherness, for goodness, for compassion, unquote. Who needs you to be their neighbor, to understand their world and their struggles in it? Who needs you to ease their burden? Who can you serve?